tonight, are you unvaccinated? Well, a new study suggests that you're probably a really bad driver too. Oh, give me a break. It's Thursday, December 15th, 2022. I'm David Menzies, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Well, folks, there are so many indicators out there that suggest things are starting to return to normal now that the very worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is behind us. Fewer people are wearing masks. Social distancing isn't really a thing anymore. All those silly directional arrows on the floors of retail stores, while well, they have more or less disappeared. And by the way, did all of that signage nonsense ever work in reducing COVID-19 transmission in the first place? But I digress. For the other day, I visited my friendly neighborhood Petro-Canada gas station and could barely believe my eyes. Those intrusive plastic shields had been removed from the counter and the guy behind the counter was not masked up as if he was about to, you know, perform a surgical procedure as opposed to cashing me out. Hallelujah. Because I don't know about you folks, but in the past two years, trying to have a conversation through reams of PPE impediments from plastic shields to fabric face diapers, well, kind of resembled the sort of discussion the Peanuts gang has with their teacher. Yes, ma'am. Anyway, these days, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, uh, the 2019 edition, that is, and that's a jolly good thing indeed. But hold on to your horses, folks, because when it comes to the quest for normalcy, we're not quite there yet. That's because the vilification and demonization of the unvaccinated continues unabated at least in certain circles. Case in point, a new study from some Sunnybrook Research Institute scientists was just released. And get this, the study suggests that those who have an underlying hesitancy to get vaccinated against COVID-19 are the same people who are essentially bad drivers and that they get into traffic accidents I swear, folks, I'm not making this up. The Sunnybrook shysters are basically stating that if you don't get jabbed with the COVID-19 vaccine, well, your motoring skills are equivalent to those of Toonce's The Driving Cat. Remember that little kitty? (laughs) See, I I told you he could drive. Well, obviously, Toonce's the driving cat isn't vaccinated either now, is he? By the way, are we vaccinating cats and dogs yet? I mean, that would make a whole new profit stream for Big Pharma, aided and abetted by their cheerleaders in the mainstream media. CNN Tonight, brought to you by Pfizer. Early start, brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. 
brought to you by Pfizer. This Week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. Good Morning America is brought to you by Pfizer. But instead of this Sunnybrook study paper being used to line a birdcage, this propaganda was actually published in the American Journal of Medicine. And here are some of the details. Using a population-based approach, the study included over 10 million adults and more than 6,000 traffic crashes throughout Ontario. Dr. Donald Redelmeyer, the principal investigator and senior scientist at Sunnybrook, stated, quote, We identified adults who had or had not received a COVID vaccine and followed each person for a traffic crash requiring emergency care, end quote. First of all, does that not seem a little weird or downright creepy to you, this business of following up on car crash victims and checking on their vaccination status? And by the way, aren't we in a healthcare crisis right now, you know, with certain hospitals at standing room only capacity? And yet there are some healthcare professionals who have enough time on their hands to cook up weird science papers? I mean, come on, guys, get back to the ER or at least get back to your song and dance routines. Wow, isn't that special? I guess if the nurses are dancing these days, I wonder if the dancers down at the Zanzibar or the House of Lancaster are providing nursing services. If so, finally, I now have a valid reason to patronize a strip club. But I digress. The study also found unvaccinated adults accounted for 1,682 traffic crashes, 25%, equal to a 72% increased relative risk compared to those who were vaccinated. The increased traffic risk was more than the risk associated with diabetes or dementia and second only to the relative risk associated with a history of alcohol misuse. Wow, I'd hate to see the accident stats for those afflicted with diabetes and dementia, and alcoholism, and worst of all, they happen to be gasp, unvaccinated too. Give me a break. Here's another statement from Dr. Frankenstein, or sorry, I mean Dr. Rettelmeyer, quote, our study demonstrated traffic risks were 50 to 70% more frequent for adults who had not been vaccinated compared to those who had. This does not mean COVID-19 vaccination directly prevents traffic crashes. Instead, it suggests that adults who do not follow public health advice may also neglect the rules of the road, end quote. Oh, man, I'm so glad Doc Rettelmeyer clarified that getting jabbed with the COVID-19 vaccine doesn't turn a bad driver into a good driver. You know, kind of like how being bitten by a radioactive spider 
might give you superpowers a la Peter Parker. By the way, for what it's worth, folks, when it comes to getting jabbed with the COVID-19 vaccine, I think I'd rather get bitten by a radioactive arachnid, even if it doesn't give me super strength and spidey senses. But back to the study. I think this is a textbook example of that which is known as jumping to conclusions. Again, check out the preponderance of weasel words, i.e., the study suggests that adults who do not follow public health advice may also neglect the rules of the road. I'm sorry, but using the word suggest and may, well, that hardly makes for a definitive scientific conclusion, wouldn't you say? And check out this whopper, quote, the authors recommend that individuals who hesitate to take the COVID-19 vaccine reflect on their choices and recognize how such decisions have repercussions in ways they do not imagine. Strategies to avoid a traffic crash include obeying the speed limit, minimizing distractions, and never driving drunk, end quote. Well, there you have it, my fellow members of Club Unvaccinated. Because you chose not to get injected with an experimental vaccine that does not work, well, that means when you get behind the wheel, you likely have a lead foot, and you might even be as drunk as a skunk, and you are prone to distractions, whatever that means. Yeah, these doctors are basically suggesting that the unvaccinated are all variations of that classic Saturday Night Live character, unfrozen caveman lawyer. Your world frightens and confuses me. Sometimes the honking horns of your traffic make me want to get out of my BMW and run off into the hills or whatever. Sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine, I wonder, did little demons get inside and type it? I don't know. My primitive mind can't grasp these concepts. Yes, my unvaxxed friends, you are all so frightened and confused. Oh, but the good doctor isn't done yet, says Redelmeyer, quote, we don't want unvaccinated people to feel persecuted and are not suggesting they stop driving. Instead, we suggest they drive a bit more carefully. Physicians counseling patients who decline COVID-19 vaccination could consider safety reminders so their patients do not become traffic statistics, end quote. Holy moly, does it get any more condescending than that? Oh, and I'm sure family doctors are really going to embrace Rettelmeyer's advice and morph from physician to, oh, I don't know, a new age version of Elmer the Safety Elephant next time an unvaxxed patient drops by. Sorry, I bumped into you, Elmer. I guess I didn't watch where I was going. You must always watch where you're going. Then you won't get hurt in traffic. I'll remember that, Elmer. Good. Say, whatever happened to Elmer the Safety Elephant? Oh, yeah, I think he got canceled in favor of Drag Queen Storytime. Anyway, talk about conflating the truth, which is to say it seems to me that the quacks behind this study 
use two completely separate ideas or sets of information that are factually unrelated to deliver a conclusion that is both flawed and dishonest. I'll give you an example of conflation. Jim Smith likes to drink champagne. Adolf Hitler also liked to drink champagne. Conclusion, Jim Smith is a Nazi. Indeed, I'd love to see the empirical evidence that went into this Sonny Brook study, if it even exists, that is. You see, I think these doctors began this study with a predestined conclusion that they were going to make the unvaccinated come across as so stupid they'd be unable to competently drive a motor vehicle. It's equal parts preposterous and egregious, and I would also argue it's immoral and unethical. And how will this so-called data be put to use when it comes to penalizing the unvaxxed? For example, how long will it be before, say, car insurance companies demand to know the vax status of their clients? And if you're unvaxxed, well, guess what? That will be a extra 7% increase, sir, on your premium because there's now evidence to prove that you are a bigger risk when it comes to your driving ability. Oh, I know it sounds outrageous, folks, but given what we have witnessed these past two years, has, would this come as a surprise to you? Not for me. Enough is enough already. At the height of COVID-19, the unvaccinated were always demonized and vilified and treated as second-class citizens. We saw the introduction of medical apartheid. The last thing we need now is for doctors with too much time on their hands to continue the demonization and vilification of the unvaccinated as COVID-19 mercifully enters its extinction event. Well, you might recall when I first talked about Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter and Twitter's knee-jerk reaction to it, which was a hard no, I went through the board of directors of Twitter, as it then was, and I noted that they really weren't people who knew about tech or who knew about media, but there were a lot of people who could be called the deep state. I use that phrase, people who were experts in foreign affairs and national security and spying and intelligence. Of course, there were foreign uh, personalities. The Saudis, of course, have always owned a large stake in Twitter. And it was my thesis back then, and I wasn't alone, but I remember calling it early, that Elon Musk understood, or at least I thought he understood, that he was buying not a free speech organ, but rather a censorship organ. That its value was not that it gave people a voice, but that it actually filtered that voice in the interests of the deep state that controlled it the same way that the Chinese-based app TikTok, well, you could call it a free speech app, but it actually is an app that puts out and takes in information that serves the Chinese government. And so it is that as Elon Musk has taken over Twitter and replaced that external board of directors and now runs the place himself, 
And only now that we learn who was running Twitter on the inside, do we see that the deep state was not just at the board of director level, it was hardwired throughout the organization in censorship functions. And joining me now to talk about this is the author of this outstanding new piece in the New York Post. The headline is Inside Revolving Door Between Democrat, Deep State, and Big Tech. I'm talking about Benjamin Weingarten, one of our favorite U.S. commentators. He joins us now via Skype. Ben, great to see you again. Um, I, I, I wasn't completely serious when I said that Twitter was an organ of the deep state, but I looked at all these directors of Twitter. I thought, these people do not know about tech. These are not young, hip, tech-savvy people that you might find in a, you know, an IT startup. These are people who care about shaping the, the information battlefield in Ukraine. These are the people who are interested in promoting, um, you know, a certain globalist agenda or a certain, and I might agree with that agenda from time to time, for example, a pro-American foreign policy, but they didn't give a hoot about free speech. They were in the information business uh, with their own message, not to be an empty platform. That's what I saw back then. Your story today proves that's actually how the place was run. Yeah, and I think to, to add to your argument, not only was it, in effect, a censorship platform, but also, in effect, a platform for surveillance, hoovering up information on individuals, as well as controlling the information that people could access. And I think what you see in terms of the idea of this being something of a captured entity of the deep state is that we ought to stop thinking of, in some respects, there being a real distinction between the administrative state writ large and, in this case, when it comes to particularly these strategically significant areas of communication or tech infrastructure with the national security agencies, that there's very little distinction and red lines drawn between the big tech companies themselves, the national security state, and then, of course, the national security state's stenographers in the legacy media companies. And all of these elements are brought together when it comes to the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, but it cuts across a whole slew of issues. And if there's one thing that the Twitter files have exposed that I think is more significant and quite frankly disturbing than any other, it's that there was censorship and suppression by proxy here, First Amendment violations by proxy, where you had the national security apparatus clearly coordinating with Twitter and, by the way, other platforms as well, including Facebook, for that matter, when it came to censoring and suppressing a whole slew of content across a wide variety of areas. And, of course, we know this with respect to the Chinese coronavirus. We know this with respect to election integrity in the post-2020 election period, but it also happened prior to that period. And what I raise in this piece, as you mentioned, is the idea that personnel is policy here. And in the form of a Jim Baker, for example, you have the personification of this lack of distinction, this blurring of lines between the security state and big tech, because you have the he, someone who was the FBI general counsel during the heat of Russiagate, during some of its most important frauds foisted on us by our national security apparatus. And then he finds himself as the deputy general counsel within Twitter calling the shots on suppressing the Hunter Biden story. So on the one hand, 
effectively running an information operation and worse against President Trump while inside the deep state, and then running an information operation also against Trump and protective of Biden outside of the deep state on the putatively private sector side. And that's one individual among many. And when it comes to the Hunter Biden story, one story among a whole slew of them where we've seen reportage in recent months of this coordination between the deep state and big tech. Yeah, what's so incredible is, I mean, seriously, the top lawyer at the FBI then becomes the deputy top lawyer at Twitter. Just, it, it couldn't be more transparent or brazen. But what's unbelievable to me is that he survived Elon Musk's takeover. And when Elon Musk started airing out the dirty laundry in what are being dubbed the Twitter files, giving internal Twitter documents to uh, I would say ideologically neutral or even left-leaning reporters like Matt Taibbi and, and Barry Weiss, who, who certainly could not be called right-wing. Uh, James Baker was still there. He was vetting what was given to the... So even when Elon Musk said, we're going to have, we're going to audit ourselves, we're going to air it all out, James Baker was still inside Twitter. He, only he was deciding what would be aired out. He, he was later sacked, but it's incredible to me that he was still a stowaway in Elon Musk's Twitter, but he's not alone. I'm, I'm reading your article here in the New York Post. Jeff Carlton, uh, an intelligence analyst for the CIA and FBI. That's what this was. I mean, the, I think the real economic value of Twitter was not the ads it would sell or things like that. It was exactly what you say. It was it was an information asset. It's what the CIA always dreamed about. Not only did they collect everything that people look at, but everything they chat about in their internal direct messages. Uh, and then finally, what, the, what they would push out as propaganda, what they would choose would be a trending story or what they would throttle so it never could trend. You, you know, you, you mentioned other tech companies. I mean, of course, Twitter is the one we're focused on right now because of uh, Elon Musk's takeover of it. But Andy Stone, um, the communications director for Facebook, um, used to be a Democrat flack, obviously. Jay Carney, who was well-known as Barack Obama's communications director, went over to Amazon, no problem, just slide right in there. We learned that Anthony Fauci's daughter was at Twitter, no problem. Like they're, they're, It's not even a revolving door because that says there's a door. There's just no door. This is a this is a adjacent hotel room that the door is taken off the hinges. They just go back and forth. I think what's most dangerous about this doorless relationship between these putatively separate sectors, the public and the private sector, is that here you have collusion, coordination, what I would call a conspiracy to violate our first freedom the First Amendment, and particularly on political speech, which the First Amendment expressly is focused on, at least as the courts have arbitrated over it. And here you have suppression of that speech on which every other liberty ultimately relies. And as you know, it's, there is this easy, frictionless relationship between Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley. And I think Silicon Valley would probably get there anyway were Democratic Party made men and women not able to slip right through the front door effortlessly into these various functions. But I think what's perhaps most disturbing about it is 
as happens in tyrannies, it's always on the basis of national security or public health and safety that these rampant violations of our rights are justified. Obviously, we saw that with the coronavirus. We also see this with election integrity. It's really important to note, and this is one of the more chilling lines I've come across in this burgeoning war on wrong thing that the national security state has served as the tip of the spear of. SISA, which is an agency within the Department of Homeland Security, which is focused on securing critical infrastructure, including election infrastructure. The head of SISA, the director of SISA, has said that perhaps the most important infrastructure of all is our, and I'm quoting directly here, cognitive infrastructure. Hmm. So think about what that implies. If it's the job of a DHS sub-agency to protect cognitive infrastructure, and as she, has, as she sees it and as she has articulated, that implies an obligation of the government to counter, quote unquote, mis, dis, and malinformation. That is to run roughshod over the First Amendment. And SISA is one of the agencies that was in the room during these regular meetings that we now know about between big tech and the various national security agencies as well. And SISA also played a substantial role in this election integrity partnership apparatus that we've learned about through the likes of progressive publications, by the way, like The Intercept, who have shown that the national security state was filtering through these requests to censor and suppress information and accounts via this third party cutout, which referred these requests onto the big tech companies and allowed them to violate the First Amendment, again, by proxy. So yeah. there's the personnel as policy issue here. There is the seamless ties between the deep state and big tech. And then there's the pernicious way that they're justifying these massive violations, which ultimately undermine every single other liberty that we cherish so deeply in America, or at least that we used to. Mm. You know, I could understand and maybe even in some cases accept the United States deploying unconstitutional means to target foreign regimes. Um, I don't think that foreign regimes or foreign citizens necessarily have rights under the American Constitution. I could be wrong on that. But what irks me is that the CIA and the FBI colonized Twitter to deploy it against the American people, to stop what American people uh, see, to stop what they say, to spy on them, uh, and to alter the American election. Now, if TikTok is a weaponized arm of the People's Liberation Army, and if, um, I forget what it's called, VK, I think, or something like that, it, it, just a Russian version of Facebook. If every country has its own social media, maybe the idea of Twitter being weaponized against foreign agents is something I could abide if, if it was limited to that. But it seems like the chief enemy of this deep state was Americans, and more precisely, Republican Americans, and even more precisely, Donald Trump. And... I, I really was, I, I don't know, it was nothing like a publisher and a free speech place. It was the opposite of it. The whole purpose of it was as a spying tool. I, I think it's amazing that Elon Musk bought it and is airing that out. It wouldn't surprise me if there are still other moles left in Twitter. I mean, it's a big place. Um, I don't know if we'll ever know everything that was said and done in that place as a Canadian I'm very curious what our Justin Trudeau 
did and said to Twitter to get them, for example, to hamstring Rebel News. Um, I'm sure he tried. Why wouldn't he? He he is a close uh, working relationship with U.S. Democrats. He shares their censorious tone. I'm sure Twitter Canada was just as liberal as Twitter in the United States. I, I wonder how much of this was done all around the world. And it reminds me that when Twitter nuked Donald Trump's Twitter account, the Mexican president, uh, Angela Merkel of Germany, I think President Macron of France, they didn't cheer. Even though each of them had their beefs with Trump, they all said this is an outrageous stretch by a tech company to censor a, a leader of a sovereign country. The world said, oh my God, what's going on? Because they could see that, that this was a form of hegemony or a form of imperialism by whoever was sitting in Twitter's executive offices. I don't know. I, I think that we've just seen the tip of the iceberg here. Well, and that, that those world leaders took a more liberal perspective in the classical sense than Twitter's internal speech police, I think tells you everything you need to know about the character and the nature of the folks serving at senior levels within Twitter. Also important to note, and I think your point is very well taken on this about moles within Twitter, the fact that James Baker continued to work there for as long as he did after the acquisition is incredibly disturbing because as you noted, he may well have been responsible and Elon Musk has sort of intimated this, he clearly was vetting information and perhaps deleted it or scrubbed it. And that's significant because Matt Taibbi himself, in one of the early dumps of Twitter files, noted that we didn't really find smoking guns with respect to what government officials were doing and saying and directing Twitter. Well, if Jim Baker was on the inside overseeing what was leaked out, do you think <laughs> he might, might have had an interest in suppressing that sort of information? And so what other information is being suppressed? And then also to your point, you know, this goes well beyond Twitter to a whole slew of tech companies because we've seen reportage to indicate that the government was meeting, national security agencies were meeting with a whole slew of big tech companies in the run-up to the election. And the context for this is really important here. Obviously, the big tech companies pay, play a substantial role in the dissemination of information vital in a campaign. But beyond that, I, I always go back to that Molly Ball article in 2021 in Time Magazine on this bipartisan conspiracy, that's her word, conspiracy, or cabal to quote unquote fortify the election. And within that article, there's a line where she talks about the fact that this powerful, well-funded cabal worked hand in hand, including to control the flow of information going into that election. That's precisely what occurred at Twitter, and I suspect it's precisely what occurred across all areas of the information battle space in America and abroad. You know, Ben, I, I'm 50 years old now. I felt, I felt motivated about political matters and injustices ever since I was a teenager. And most of the time, I, I'm only modestly successful at persuading things or moving the world. And I think that's how it should be. The world should be a very difficult thing to change. Um, I, I think that's proper. But in my 50 years, there have been a few moments where I've had a, an explosive success and I managed to get a message out and people to hear what I thought was a scandalous injustice. And I finally had my platform, whether it was on a huge TV station or 
a successful campaign of some sort. And I finally had that moment of truth that I had been working for maybe for years, Ben. And I, and I was able to say what I wanted to say, unvarnished, unlimited, and, and nothing. And I couldn't blame anyone because I was successful. I, I was able to say what I wanted to say. And, and the world didn't change, Ben. And it's a humbling reminder that not everyone cares about the world as you do. And, and if they do care, no, it's hard to change the world. And I don't know, that's sort of a personal way of saying Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and his revelations that every conspiracy theory was correct. They really were censoring things. It really was hand in glove with the FBI and the CIA. And they really were everything we had. A and, and now here's the proof of it. And even the proof of it has more skullduggery. And this is my point. So this is the perfect moment. It's almost impossible to think, Ben, that, that there was someone who would spend $44 billion to get the truth. Like, like that's what I mean by a once-in-a-lifetime truth-telling moment. Will it ever again, has it ever before happened that someone mustered $44 billion just to find the truth? It's unthinkable. And here it is, ta-da, voila. Uh, everything here that we alleged, it's proof, QED, ta-da. And nothing. And nothing. Um, our state broadcaster here, the CBC, I, I typed in Twitter, and the only story they had over the last month was that Elon Musk got booed at a Dave Chappelle comedy show in California. <laughs> that that was the only thing they thought was newsworthy coming out of Twitter this past month, just in case you didn't know, Ben. Um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they're all saying, oh, this is a nothing burger. So this is one of those moments where you have a perfect moment of truth, and I ask you, will anything bloody well change, Ben? Well, and we've had a couple of others, too, like with respect to Russiagate and, and with the Hunter Biden laptop story. Will anything change? More and more, I think marginally, more and more people continue to see the mask being removed, that it is a rigged deck in the sense of every single powerful institution, whether organically or conspiratorially, because quite frankly, it could all be organic, the way these people operate and what their worldview is, do really work together to protect their power, their privilege, their fiefdoms, and to crush dissenters. And as the dissent grows, so too does the ratcheting up of the totalitarian kind of means by which they try to counter it. So I think the, the worse these actors perform that's a testament, I think, to the strength of the opposition. So that's somewhat comforting. There's also a question of, does the extent to which they engage in all sorts of these, in these activities and they get exposed, and that these activities keep getting more and more malicious and unhinged, does that suggest a weakness or a strength on their side? And I think that's an important question to always consider. But I also do share your demoralization that it takes one billionaire with $44 billion to buy what he himself has admitted is essentially a crime scene. It's crickets, of course, from a media that is in and of itself implicated in all of this and so has a vested interest in suppressing it. And all they want to talk about is how Elon Musk paid $44 billion to increase hate speech. Mm -hmm. And that thus that, that provides even further justification for worse censorship. And by the way, what censorship is going on right now? What kind of conversations are going on right this minute between national security agencies 
and the various big tech companies. There's far more to find out. Thank God some eyes have been open to it. And for that, whatever Elon Musk's failings, uh, it's been a, and not just a national public service, it's been a global public service, this acquisition. Well, and I still hold out some hope. I think it, it, it is a, a source of hope, but you know, you can be the richest man in the world, one of the smartest men in the world, one of the most successful men in the world, but there's always someone or something bigger. The deep state is larger than anything. Um, and, and sometimes they use means that, uh, I, I mean, I, a similar eye, jaw-dropping, eye-opening red pill moment, as the kids would say, was the whole Jeffrey Epstein affair. And what came of that? I mean, other than Bill Gates' wife divorcing him, do we know who the, who the predators were? I don't know. These are difficult things to talk about because you're called a conspiracy theorist for even chewing them over. But then when the facts come out, the response from the, the regime media is, oh, that's old news. We already knew that. No, you denied it until this moment. You called it a conspiracy theory until this moment. Now you're saying it's old news, so you can skip the part where we talk about it. Anyway, Ben, I, d- I don't mean to be so pessimistic. I loved your piece in the National Post. I'd encourage everyone to read it. I am starting to get nightmares. I've seen so many pictures of a half-naked Hunter Biden. Um, but uh, even that in itself, I mean, just the scrutiny that was put on the Trump sons, on Donald Trump Jr., on Eric, and, and like just the, all the lads, and all the accusations that they were profiteering some way off their dad's presidency, I, I don't think there was ever any evidence furnished of it. And here you have the first son with no business skills, with no success in life, getting multi-million dollar or even billion dollar contracts from communist China, from Russia, from Ukraine, with no discernible benefit to the payer other than influencing his father, and it's, oh, well, leave them alone. You're picking on someone with substance abuse issues. It's just incredible. That's the world we live in. And uh, hopefully the truth is interesting enough to, to overcome. Ben, I appreciate you writing the truth in the New York Post. And I appreciate you joining us here as you always do. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. There you have it. Ben Weingarten. These are tough things to talk about. I find them somewhat demoralizing. Stay with us. More ahead. Folks, do you have a favorite 2022 Ezra Levant show or gun show or Rebel Roundup show or a misunderstood memory? Or maybe you have a special request you'd like Ezra Levant or Sheila Gunn-Reed or myself or Kat Krosanowski or Nat Biazzi to hear. Or perhaps you just want to tell Ezra, Sheila, myself or Kat, Nat about your holiday wishes Well, good news. This Christmas season, Ezra and Sheila, myself, Kat and Nat, we all want to hear from you. We will review your letters to all of these rebels. And if chosen, Ezra, Sheila, myself or Kat or Nat will read your letters. The deadline to submit your letters is fast approaching. So be sure to get your submissions in as soon as possible. All you have to do is visit letterstorebels.ca, that's letterstorebels.ca, and fill out the form. Can't wait to see your comments and my thanks in advance. Well, folks, that wraps up tonight's edition of the Ezra Event Show. I will be filling in tomorrow as well as the big boss man is traveling out west. 
In the meantime, thanks for tuning in. And as always, stay safe and stay sane. It is commonplace for those who have received their third, fourth, fifth doses to get COVID, even if they've been vaccinated. Surely you can all see that the current strategy is not doing what it was purported to do. So here we are more than a year later, our healthcare system on the brink of collapse and the healthcare worker injection mandate continues to be in effect. Despite the vast amount of evidence discrediting the validity of the order, despite every other province in this country and many countries around the world acknowledging this approach is neither scientifically sound nor effective. Despite the tens of thousands of COVID-related sick calls all of our health authorities have received after the non-vaccinated healthcare workers were fired and thus not spreading COVID in the workplace. So again, perhaps someone here can enlighten me as to what is different in BC. In this email, I shared under PHSA's whistleblower policy, some of the alarming red flags I noticed related to COVID while working as a nurse for PHSA. Namely, the huge discrepancy in adverse vaccine reactions occurring versus those being reported to the public. In this email, an abundance of credible resources were included. I have yet to receive a response from a single one of you. The public health measures, including but not limited to the experimental COVID injection that you have facilitated, promoted, and mandated are causing significant morbidity and mortality in this province. In Pfizer's own post-market trial data in the first three months, ending February 28, 2021, their own data reported several pages of adverse reactions, including over 1,200 deaths. Myocarditis, among other cardiac issues, severe neurological issues, and a horrific rate of fetal demise in mothers who discovered they were pregnant when they received the injection. The increased all-cause mortality and decreased live births have been impacted globally at rates never seen before, not even close to it. Our healthcare system was already failing before COVID. It is now on the brink of irreparable dysfunction. I, as a nurse, one of the many thousands, am now on welfare and lining up at the food bank every two weeks because you continue to uphold a mandate that is not scientifically sound, ethical, moral, or lawful. I have reviewed your information and I am confident in the evidence the province is using. I will leave. Shame on all of you for not looking into this. There will come a point in time and it's becoming more and more obvious. This is Aurora Bisson-Montpetit. Now tell us uh, how you were working as a nurse before these mandates. So initially I was working at 811, the nurses hotline, um, which is under HealthLink BC. And during this time, people would call in and after the vaccine was rolled out, I would get call after call after call of adverse reactions from people who had recently received the vaccine. I was obviously very concerned about it. I wasn't surprised because um, I'd been looking into this for quite some time. I had initially tried to raise this concern to my manager and was brushed off. Um, I left uh, HealthLink BC 
uh, I think it was around May, June, maybe. And then I transferred to Children's Hospital in July. And that's where I was fired from was Children's Hospital working in adolescent inpatient mental health, which, as we all know, what this has done to the mental health of everybody mm -hmm. and to see it happening to the kids in this province has been absolutely horrendous. So I want to flash back just a bit to what you said there. You're getting these calls about these adverse reactions to this safe and effective jab that we were all told about. And then flash forward some months later and you're told you better get this or you lose your job. I have very little patience for people who aren't immunized in healthcare. What was that like? It was um, horrendous to say the least. Um, I knew it was coming. I was hoping obviously like many of us that things would change before that point. Um, it was the week before um, the mandates actually came into effect and my manager approached me while I was at work and said, you know, you know what's happening, what are you planning to do? And I said, well, I'm not providing you with my personal private medical information. And she said, well, I already know you're not vaccinated. So a complete breach of my private medical information. Yeah. I think that was something we still haven't completely grasped. Now, one of the questions that people have been asking, including myself over the past months, is how many nurses or doctors or what have you have been laid off without paid or terminated? I recently interviewed another nurse, a former ER nurse, who is also not helping save lives right now, thanks to these mandates she did a freedom of information request to get that number as it pertains to the nurses. Let's just play a clip of that. Uh, I had to be very specific. So I used the dates from November 30th, 2021 until June 30th, 2022. So um, one of the questions I asked were how many just specifically nurses were terminated due to the COVID um, mandates. And so up until June 30th, there were just over 2000 that were terminated. There has been more that have been terminated since then as they come back from leaves. And this does not actually cover the numbers that left on early retirement. And so, um, the union actually reimburses nurses $200 on their license fees. We have to pay $700 a year for that. And the union reimburses $200. This year, as compared to last year, there were 4,000 less reimbursements. And we sort of look at that as the early retirements, as most of the terminated did keep their licenses. So we're looking at, at probably six to 8,000 less nurses in the system than last year. I also asked how many COVID sick calls there were. So when you are scheduled for a shift and you can't make it, you have to phone into this phone line and it gives you options as to why you aren't going to be able to make your shift. Um, illness was one. And then when COVID happened, they actually differentiated between COVID illness and regular illness. So in the six months, November 30th to June 30th, and only four health authorities, because Island Health didn't uh, differentiate for some reason, there were over 20,000 COVID sick calls in double vaccinated nurses. This is just the nurses. I'm not talking about any other healthcare. So 20,000 COVID sick calls. So what you have now is nurses who are uh, sick with COVID, and then you've taken out healthy nurses, and then we ran into critical staffing shortages because there was nobody able to cover all of these nurses. So the COVID sick calls, the terminated, and then interestingly enough, I did ask for numbers of nurses last year versus numbers of nurses this year. Now, each of the health authorities 
brought up that we there was actually a couple hundred more in each health authority of nurses, which I found interesting until I realized that COVID funding from the federal government um, actually enabled them to hire back a lot of retired nurses uh, um, for immunize, COVID immunizations, contact tracing. And so there was a lot of nurses that were brought on for that, but not necessarily in the front lines. Now, I found it interesting that Adrian Dick said that he has added 38,000 healthcare workers to our healthcare system. And I would like him to produce the evidence for that because that is not what I found. So thousands of nurses, mind you, this is while BC's healthcare system is completely in shambles. It was already on its last legs before COVID and now it's desperately understaffed. But something Corinne Mori pointed out and you actually pointed out in that meeting was that there were the sick calls after you guys were out of the system. What was that about? Yeah, so after we were no longer allowed to work, there have been tens of thousands of COVID-related sick calls. Um, there's a, there's a, it's called the Earl line, in which employees call in and say why they're sick, how many days they're gonna be off. So the province has the data and the numbers saying how many people, and they break it down into regular sickness, COVID-related sickness. So they have all the numbers of how many COVID-related sick calls um, how many times these people have been calling in. So we weren't the ones spreading COVID in the workplace. Yeah. It was all the nurses and healthcare workers who were still at work. You demonize those like me, stating that we were a threat to patients, the public and the healthcare system. While you hypocritically ask nurses with active COVID illness to continue working in the healthcare system. Somehow magically vaccinated nurses who are sick are not a risk to others but non-vaccinated nurses who are healthy are a risk. Kudos to you. I mean, the way you handled yourself was so good. <laughs> you were just by yourself, but boy, you were mighty. And you, I don't know what was going through their heads when they were listening to you. What's happened since then? Did you get any solid answers? Um, no, I still have not received a reply from any of them. Um, the I've sent several emails over the last year. The investigation summary in which I mentioned during the video, I haven't received a single reply from any of them, which is obviously very concerning. It's very interesting because there's um, a number of lawyers that are actually on the board and the executive. And some of them are actually allegedly human rights specialists. So I find that very um, concerning, hypocritical, ironic. Well, human rights only matter if the government said so, right? <laughs> now, I also reached out from Rebel News to try to get some of the answers to the questions that you asked. I have not heard back at this point in time, but if I do in a reasonable manner, I will go ahead and update the written, written article for this report, which you can find in the description below. Thank you so much, Aurora, for being on Rebel News. Thank you, Drea. Till the next report, I'm Drea Humphrey with Rebel News.